Hi, this is Dr. Timothy Bartell for the Poetry Corner at the St. Constantine School. Today I want to talk about a poem by Richard Wilbur, someone that I've uh, recently uh, blogged in praise of as one of our most accomplished formal poets still living and writing today. I wanted to look at uh, one of his most famous early poems. This was published in the 1940s. Uh, Wilbur was actually born in 1921 and is 96, I suppose. Uh, he's up there. Uh, pray for him and his health. Wilbur has distinguished himself as uh, not just one of the great formal poets, but one of the great poets just in general of the 20th century in America. And he's important partly because he's one of our better poets of World War II. He fought on the Western Front. Uh, and a lot of his early poetry is tinged with his experience in the trenches. Uh, but after World War II, he didn't just kind of cash in on the fact that he was in the trenches and write a bunch of war poetry and then be done. He followed the 20th century as it developed, and many of his, his most important and enduring poems aren't about World War II. They're about the experience of life in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. He's, he's a poet of the late 20th century. Uh, as much as he is of the mid-20th century. And in fact, his last book, which came out in 2011, Rooms, he's still going strong. He's writing, uh, writing and translating uh, riddles from ancient Greek poetry. He has a very broad range of interests. He's also probably the most important translator of Moliere, uh, the French playwright in the 20th century, and maybe ever. I want to look at an early poem of his from the 40s, like I said. It's called The Beautiful Changes. It's the last poem, and in fact the title poem, of his first collection, The Beautiful Changes, which was published uh, after he got back from uh, the Western Front. It's a poem that is formal, but not necessarily in a traditional form. You'll notice rhyme in it, you'll notice some regular rhythm, but it's not in as strict a traditional form as some of the other sonnets that we've looked at in previous podcasts. So this is called The Beautiful Changes. One wading a fall meadow finds on all sides the Queen Anne's lace lying like lilies on water. It glides so from the walker. It turns dry grass to a lake as the slightest shade of you valleys my mind in fabulous blue lucernes. The beautiful changes as a forest is changed by a chameleon's turning his skin to it, as a mantis arranged on a green leaf grows into it, makes the leaf leafier and proves any greenness is deeper than anyone knows. Your hands Hold roses always, in a way that says they are not only yours. The beautiful changes in such kind ways, wishing ever to sunder things and things selves for a second finding, to lose for a moment all that it touches back to wonder. This is a very dense poem, both descriptively and conceptually. We recently talked about Plath. Plath really likes alliteration, especially of vowel sounds. This has a lot of consonant alliteration or consonants, which kind of thickens up the reading of it. That second line, the Queen Anne's lace lying like lilies on water. It borders on a sort of Dr. Seussian tongue-twisting. Of course, Gerard Manley Hopkins uh, is the Victorian poet who's most 
perhaps responsible for popularizing very difficult consonant structures in his lines. I think of his lines as kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. All those F sounds in a row, you have to really concentrate to say correctly. So I think the effect of such use of consonants causes us to slow down, especially in out loud readings of this poem. And I think this poem should be read aloud. Most poetry is written to be read aloud. But something that's in a regular meter like iambic pentameter or iambic tetrameter kind of clips along a bit, whereas this does not clip along. This wants us to really linger. So let's linger with these stanzas for a while. There are three of them. Each stanza is six lines long. And uh, you probably notice that there's some rhyming. Uh, the rhyme scheme of each is A, B, A, C, D, C. So sides, lilies, glides, turns, you, lucernes are the rhymes in the first stanza. I'll read the first stanza again. One wading a fall meadow finds on all sides the Queen Anne's lace lying like lilies on water. It's the first two and a half lines. It's interesting that Wilbur starts not with I was wading a fall meadow or once while wading a fall meadow I found on all sides. This isn't a autobiographical report or at least a seeming autobiographical report. We've talked in other poems about not necessarily assuming that the speaker in the poem is the writer themselves telling you true stories about their life. But here it's even one step further removed. It's one wading a fall meadow. Uh, it almost sounds like the language that I often require my high school and college students to write in, in formal academic writing. One can see in Hamlet instead of I see in Hamlet. So this is, this is kind of formal and also offers this description of experience not as something the poet has experienced, but something that anyone might experience. It offers it to the reader as something that they can do, or maybe that they have experienced that the, uh, that the poet is acknowledging. One wading a fall meadow finds on all sides the Queen Anne's lace lying like lilies on water. So anyone who may be wading a fall meadow will find this to be the case. This is a very lovely description, but sometimes I have a little trouble with merely lovely descriptions in poetry. Okay, so you describe something concretely and well and thickly with language that was very um, fun to say. That's a delight of poetry. That's something that I think often poets don't even get up to. But if all we have is very nice aesthetic description. I think sometimes we can leave a poem feeling like, well, not whole. We didn't have a whole experience. We, we saw some aesthetically pleasing things, but it didn't make us think. Or if it made us think, it made us think about a scene, but didn't interpret the scene, didn't give it meaning other than its surface beauty. Now, this is actually a hard thing to talk about as a poet, because often what I'm trying to get my fellow writers to do in workshop, or my fellow writers are trying to get me to do in workshop, or I'm trying to introduce my students to, is caring about these very 
we might say surface level beauties of sound and image. But one of the things I love about Wilbur is that I trust that if he gives me this image that I think I want more from, not just surface beauty, I can trust he's going to give me the deeper meaning. Deeper meaning, of course, is itself a dangerous term. But Wilbur knows what he's doing here, so let's let's go with him. It's already pretty. There is Queen Anne's lace lying like lilies on water. But if that's all it was, I could see someone saying, well, that was pretty, but why is it worth my time? It glides, he says. It glides so from the water, walker, it turns dry grass to a lake as the slightest shade of you valleys my mind in fabulous blue lucernes. Oh man, this is, this is really fun. I spent so much time saying he starts with one, not I, this is not an I self-report poem, and then all of a sudden he makes it one in the second half of the first stanza. It glides, I think that's the Queen Anne's lace is the it, it glides so from the walker. So you're walking through the Queen Anne's lace and it's gliding back from you. It turns dry grass to a lake. I think we've all experienced this, right? Either seeing it or experiencing it while we walk in a field that uh, the grass or the foliage in a field so moves that it becomes water. It's one of the things that poetry does well. It points out these moments where nature changes before us. Now, using the word changes is already uh, suggestive of the title of this poem, The Beautiful Changes. So it turns dry grass to a lake as the slightest shade of you valleys my mind in fabulous blue lucerns. There's so much to say about this. I think I want to focus on the you my. All of this description of how one might feel or one does feel walking in a field becomes a simile for how the speaker feels about the spoken to. And I almost want to say not just the spoken to, but the beloved who is spoken to. The slightest shade of you valleys my mind. It's just a wonderful verb, valleys, right? We often think of valley as a noun. The shade of the beloved valleys the speaker's mind in fabulous blue lucernes. Once again, we're back to that very lush language, but now it's figurative. The mind itself is a field which can be changed, can, can have something valley it or move through it or even change it totally from what it looked like before. Okay, it, very interesting things are going on. Let's keep reading. The beautiful changes as a forest is changed by a chameleon's tuning his skin to it. Okay, so we had one very uh, offering something as a, as a universal or perhaps ubiquitous experience. We've had very individual me, you language. Now we have a, a sentence that starts with the beautiful. The beautiful what? Well, the beautiful itself. I know that Wilbur is familiar with the Western philosophical tradition, and so when he says the beautiful, I think it's very difficult not to think of Plato's Symposium, which talks about what the beautiful is, what beauty it is, itself is. The beautiful changes as a forest is changed. So here is an abstract concept, beautiful, or the beautiful. It changes just like nature does, as a forest is changed by a chameleon's tuning his skin to it. Ah, oh, this is very interesting. The forest changes not by it changing, but by something in it changing. The chameleon tunes his skin to the forest. Once tuning, uh, by the way, is a fantastic verb there. The verbs here are so instructive. 
I think if I was writing this, I would use much more boring verbs, not by choice, but by weakness. Uh, we've had the verb valleys, and now we have tunes. Just lovely. Uh, we were talking about a Plath poem earlier. She talks about the yellow heartening. A poet needs to focus not just on his descriptive words, his, his adjectives and adverbs. He needs to focus, or she needs to focus, on verbs, and Plath and Wilbur do this so well. A chameleon tuning his skin to it. And we're going to get another image now. As a mantis arranged on a green leaf grows into it, making the leaf leafier. I, lo I love that. It's, it's the kind of language that we might associate with someone uh, not knowing quite how to say a thing. Wilbur has already proved to us that he knows how to say and describe things very well. But for some reason, he wants to say, when one small aspect, especially a living aspect, within a setting becomes more like that setting, turns to look more like it, that setting becomes itself more itself. This language isn't just uh, the language of a baffled describer, it's also the language of philosophy. The language of philosophy, especially ontology, talks about the thinginess of things, or the redness of red. Uh, this is philosophical language right at the limit of possible speech. It's what I love about Wilbur. He's not a poet who's divorced from uh, the language of other disciplines. Let me start at the beginning of that clause again. As a mantis arranged on a green leaf grows into it, makes the leaf leafier, and proves any greenness is deeper than anyone knows. That's daring, that use of any twice. But we now have a principle of color. I said earlier, we have beautiful description of physical objects, but I want a little more. Now we have a statement about greenness itself. Proves any greenness is deeper than anyone knows. That's a pretty broad statement. Anytime you see green, it's deeper than, not just you know, than anyone knows. And that's proved by chameleons and mantises turning green, which proves something not just about them, not just about their setting, but the color green itself. Okay, this is getting a little strange, it's getting a little theoretical. But it's getting theoretical not because it said, let us consider color. It invited us to think about nature and our experience of it, and animals' experience of it, reptiles and insects. And now, through that investigation, we might call it a sort of poetic empirical investigation, we are coming up with color theory, strangely. All right, let's look at this final uh, stanza, because it's going to bring us even more strange revelations. Your hands, ah, you, your, all of a sudden, uh, the beloved is back. Your hands hold roses, always, in a way that says they are not only yours. Now, we were having a conversation about uh, Anne Bradstreet in another podcast uh, recently, and one of the things that Bradstreet says in her poem, On the Burning of My House, is this realization that when we lose a thing that we had owned, we have this re realization that it wasn't ours to begin with. It was being, it was borrowed. It was on loan either from God or uh, from time itself, right? Time loans us things, perhaps. God gives us things for a season. That's a lesson that we learn in scripture, in literature, in poetry, uh, in some very famous poems. Wilbur's kind of riffing on that a little bit. It's, it might be a little too easy, too well-worn to say, oh, all these things, they weren't ours to begin with. We're just supposed to enjoy them. No, he says, your hands hold roses always in a way that says they are not only yours. 
He's acknowledging the roses are yours. They're not only yours. There is a greater belonging that all things, roses, greenness, has. Are those your roses? Yes. Are those my roses? Yes. Are they everybody's roses? Yeah, maybe. It's not that no one owns things, and thus we should be grateful for them. It's that things are owned by so many. It's the abundance, the overabundance of the world. This is something, in fact, that makes me think of uh, John Locke's Second Treatise of Government, where he talks about uh, God giving the earth and all in it as property for man, or potential property for man. Wilbur has taken us from ancient philosophy to modern philosophy, and he's not done yet. They are not only yours. The beautiful changes in such kind ways, wishing ever to sunder things and things selves for a second finding, to lose for a moment all that it touches back to wonder. So once again, very bold. We have the beautiful changes, that exact phrase, for the third time. We had it in the title. We had it in the second stanza with the beautiful changes as a forest is changed. And we get the beautiful changes again, the beautiful changes in such kind ways. It's lovely. It's not very deeply descriptive. It's giving a, a sort of moral character to what the beautiful does. Before the beautiful had changed like nature changes, now the beautiful changes uh, perhaps in a personal way, in a kind way. Now, if we want to get uh, a bit meta about this, the beautiful changes in different ways. In fact, the way that the beautiful changes as a phrase has been used has now changed. The beautiful changes changes. Now, we could, we could get confused very quickly with that, but I think, I think that's a subtle thing that's going on. In indicating that this is a poem about change and using this phrase about change several times, Wilbur is subtly changing the nature of change that beauty experiences or undergoes or commits. The beautiful changes in such kind ways, wishing, wishing, the beautiful has been personified very much now, wishing ever to sunder. Well, that's, that's not a great word, right? That's, that's sundering. That's not as nice as uh, some of the other descriptions we've had here. Wishing ever to sunder, also sunder, that's, that's the last word uh, in a short line. There's some weight put on that. The beautiful is kind, it wishes to sunder. Sunder what? Things and things selves for a second finding. It wants to part a thing from itself so that thing can find itself again. We had earlier the green becoming more green by something else becoming green. We had the forest changing because a chameleon becomes like it. We have this question of the leaf becoming leafier and what that means. If something is to become more itself, there needs to have been a sundering from its true self, from its complete self. The beautiful, beauty itself does that. It sunders things because it wants them to have the joy of a second finding. We have this final description in the last line, to lose for a moment all that it touches back to wonder. Sunder is not rhymed with thunder or something else kind of dark and ominous. Sunder is rhymed with wonder. The purpose of sundering is always to bring things back to a sense of wonder by losing for a moment all that it touches. There's a concept here that a thing must be somehow disassociated from itself in order to be itself. There needs to be some parting to come back together. 
This reminds me of the Christian Wyman poem that we talked about a few podcasts ago, uh, where he talks about people's shadows as maybe more able to understand God's presence and absence than the people from whom the shadow is sundered. I think there's a similarity going on here. I don't know if if uh, Wyman was thinking of the beautiful changes, the exact poem, but there's a similar idea here, and they're similar poets. They're both Americans, they're both within the broad liturgical Protestant tradition. Uh, Wilbur is a lifelong Anglican. So there's, there's these ideas of things becoming more themselves, even in these moments, or even through these moments, of brokenness and sundering. Uh, Wyman uses the word rivenness, whereas Wilbur uses sundering. But it's all for the purpose of wonder. Wisdom, Socrates says, begins in wonder, in wondering, in wondering why. Wilbur has been one of our great wonderers, both at nature and at philosophical questions through his poetry. He's still going strong Uh, And I thank him for giving us, uh, decade after decade, generation after generation, these considerations through verse that make us slow down and ponder, and even ponder those things that for a moment are painful. Find, he seems to suggest, where you are being pushed back into wonder at the world, even in your moments of discomfort, of pain. That's hard. That's hard to do as a poet, to encourage that. He invites us to, and I thank him for it. This has been the Poetry Corner. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell. Thank you.